So um, after many years of driving in the Midwest, Jane and I uh, lived out there, went to college out there. Jane is from Iowa. And uh, so after many years of driving in the Midwest, I've come to recognize and respect the ditches that are on either side of the road. And, and um, I think I even have a picture, not necessarily Iowa ditches, but um, somewhere uh, we have the, the road with ditches. And, and, and if you've never been in the Midwest, you don't know what I'm talking about because around here we just have guardrails and um, there's not really room for ditches. But out there, there's plenty of wide open space and you have the road and then you have the ditches. We, we don't have that picture I guess not. Um, so, so anyway, as we think about that, you want to be sure to stay on the road because if you don't, you will end up in the ditch and that's not a good place to be. And I speak this morning from experience. Uh, Jane and I were one Sunday morning many years ago while we were both in college dating, uh, one Sunday morning heading to uh, the gathering of our church and it was a cold, frosty morning. The roads weren't ice-covered, but they were covered with a thick frost, much like your lawns probably were this morning uh, when you looked out your front window. And uh, we were heading up on the two-lane road and uh, up to Ames, Iowa, where we were going to attend church. And a car pulled out, and I didn't want to hit the brakes because I thought I might skid and go into the ditch. So I did one of those, and you, you kind of just move out around. Rather than hitting the brakes, just kind of move out, and then you go around. And because they pulled out, and we always call it the farmer move, they pull out and go about five miles an hour. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh. so. But as I pulled out to go around them and get back in, I ended up skidding anyway and sliding and spinning and ended up upside down in a ditch. We were fine. Uh, it was interesting. I looked at Jane to make sure she was fine. And we're both sitting on the ceiling of the car upside down in the ditch, uh, inside ceiling of the car. Uh, so that was our experience with that upside down in a ditch. And ever since I met Jane, my life has been turned upside down. Uh, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. No, um, because of what probably right side up would be the way to say that, right? Uh, so my encouragement to you this morning is watch out for the ditches. Watch out for the ditches. Uh, I'm guessing that some of you experience sliding on snowy or icy roads or parking lots. We have people that come over to the, our nice parking lot here and when it's snow covered and do all kinds of, as we say, donuts in the parking lot just for fun. And uh, so I'm sure you've been there. I you don't know whether you've ever ended up in a ditch, but you understand the danger of going off the road. Well, last week uh, we talked about what I believe are two extremes in church leadership. We talked about elder rule where pastors have all the authority. We then also talked about congregational rule, where the congregation has all the authority. And these positions, both of them, I think are at the extreme, and I would say to you are off-the-road positions. In other words, when we think about that, they're ditches that we need to afford uh, to, to stay away from, not afford, that we need to avoid 
uh, ditches we need to avoid. Now, without question, we said Jesus Christ is the authority of the church. He is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. But we've talk, been talking about who's in charge here at the human level. And as we think that through, um, I've been doing some thinking and praying this week. In fact, I also talked last week about a concept that I believe harmonizes many of the relevant Bible passages and responsibilities that the Bible says each of us has as individual members and for us as pastors uh, in, within the church, what the elders and what the congregation are to do. And this position harmonizes all of that into one concept, one position. And we said it's called elder-led congregationalism. And that may have been a, a new term for you. Uh, it actually was for me. But uh, after some evaluation, as I mentioned with our pastors and some others this week, and after listening to last week's message, I believe I need to give some clarification to this concept so that we make sure we understand what it really means and where we are with this whole business of elder-led congregationalism. And so I want to share with you today some clarification from God's Word. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible and uh, you would like to have one uh, underneath the chair in front of you, you should grab a Bible there and on page 762, um, it is there for you. And then, of course, we're going to look at Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. Now, encouraged you last week to take notes. And as we always do, underline, highlight, whatever it is you need to do to remember what we're talking about. Because we're adding some clarity, I trust, this week to what we shared last week. Um, so here we go. Let me start by clarifying again the terminology we used. We talked about the word elders, and we see that in Scripture. Elders is the most used word by far and away in the New Testament for the individual that we call pastor, all right? The pastors of the church, elders, that's a word that's used in the Bible, they are pastors, they are shepherds, they are overseers, they are men called of God who are gifted and equipped by God to serve the local church, to, to minister to the body right here, you, the church, the body here at Heritage. Now, as you think about that, elders, what comes to mind? Let me pause a minute, but what comes to mind when you hear the word tailgate? Say, what? Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about elders today, pastors. What comes to mind when you hear the word tailgate? What? what, what? Steelers. Steelers? Wow. All right. Yeah, it means a party in the parking lot where there's a football game going on, right? Okay, that's one. Joe? Tailgate. Were you going too close? Ah, tailgate. Anybody do that? No, no, anybody don't like that? Yeah, well, that's all everybody, right? What's that guy's on my tail? Uh, tailgating. How about another one? Uh, part of a truck. There you go. I, those are the three things I had in my notes. Yeah, the, the back end of a pickup truck, right? It's got the tailgate. 
that folds down. And I think that's where the football party in the parking lot started because I opened that up and you, you use it like a table. But tailgate, all right. So same word but different meanings, right? And depending on your experience or your background or your culture, tailgate means different things. If you're the sports fan, it's going to be the party in the parking lot. If you're a trucker or uh, you work construction or just because you like it, you have a pickup truck. If you're out driving on the highway and you don't like people really up close to the back of your car, you think tailgate. I hate those people. What is wrong with, right? Depending on where you're coming from. That's how you would define the word. Please, please, please do not be afraid of Bible words that may mean different things to you. You say, well, wait a minute. The words in use in the Bible are very specific. That's true. And when we see the word elder, make sure that your mind doesn't go to one of the ditches that we talked about, elder rule. But that is what happens. And we don't want to go there. So when you think about it, when you think about elder, you think of the, the, the description of that word as we call it, pastor. And so when we think of elder rule, that would be a ditch. Folks, we're not there. That's not what we believe. That's not what our constitution describes. So when you're reading your Bible, right, you all do regularly, right, each day, yes, yes, yeah, all right, good. Yeah, when we read our Bible, there are words that we come across and we got to know what they mean. You got to look at the context and find out what does that word mean? What, what is the writer of that particular book talking about when he uses that word? And so when we, when we see that, we need to understand. Please know, folks, we are not planning to change our terminology here at Heritage. We're not planning to change our practice. We're not heading for the ditch. We're not driving off the road. But as we've come across passages to describe on a human level the leadership of the local church, elder is one of those words that we've talked about. But here at Heritage for the last 54 years, as far as I know, we call the leaders of our church pastors. We've made the point that they are elders, that they are bishops, overseers, shepherds, but we call them pastors. That's where we are, all right? We've, we've really covered that a lot, but I want you to just hear it point blank so you understand exactly what we're talking about. The Heritage Statement of Faith, and if you've looked at the Constitution or our Statement of Faith, you can find that online, and there it says, Article 2, Section 8, the local church is led by pastors, but notice this, parentheses, or elders, or overseers, and served by deacons. And there's scriptural support for those verses. That's what's in our statement of faith. What we say as a church, we believe the Bible teaches about that area. The local church is led by pastors or elders or overseers and served by deacons. So that's why it was important that we had these deacons up here this morning. They will serve the church. They will assist the pastors. That's what we say later on in the statement of faith, in the work of the ministry here at Heritage. The local church led by pastors or elders or overseers. Now, who do they lead? They lead the congregation. 
We defined that for you last week. The congregation is a visible group of followers of Jesus who choose to faithfully gather at least on a regular weekly basis, right? Right here, that's what this is. The congregation is gathered. But here's also three things that are true about them. There's a, a belief in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. That uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The congregation believes the gospel. The congregation is committed to be more like Jesus. And number three, we said the congregation is committed to loving and sharing responsibility for one another. Others within the body of Christ, the congregation. That's what we're talking about. So the congregation is made up of those who believe Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Because they've received the gospel. They, by faith, believe they were sinners without Christ who died on the cross to pay for our sin. He died, as we often say. The gospel, what? He died in our place for our sins. Exactly. That's the gospel. And so that's what the congregation is made up of. But then we said, what's congregationalism? And this may be where we lacked a little bit of the clarity that I want to really drill down on today. And we said congregationalism, it's not a church, it's not a denomination. It, is the local, it means the local church is not subject to outside governance. No other group of churches or individuals, a, a hierarchy of individuals up within the higher levels of some church, tell Heritage Baptist Church what to do. Only God does that. Right? And so that's, as we talk about congregationalism, we are not subject to outside governors, governance. We use the word autonomous, which means just that, self-governing. We govern ourselves. And then thirdly, congregation is involved in church decisions. And I'll spell that out for you. We have that spelled out in our, con in our constitution, and we'll, we'll get to there. And that, that level varies from church to church. So let me illustrate, at least from two passages of Scripture, if we have time, we'll look at a third. Two passages of, of Scripture, what this business of pastor-led congregationalism really looks like. So we already asked you to open to your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. I'm just going to have you follow me through. This will help add some clarification, I believe, to help you understand what are we talking about by congregationalism. What does that mean? Pastor-led congregationalism. So in Acts chapter 6 and starting at verse 1, we read, we read this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now you say, wait a minute, didn't you preach this a few weeks ago? Yes. We talked about deacons, so I'm not going to go into detail about the text and, and the idea of where the deacons came from, but I want you to walk with me through this because I want you to see how congregationalism works, how that, what that really is and how it functions. So there we have, as we look at it, um, the church has an opportunity. We might, some would say, a problem. 
but it's an opportunity for growth and for strengthening of their ministry. Some of the widows were being overlooked. They came, they complained, the Bible says, to the 12. The 12 were the 12 disciples, right? Now called apostles, Judas Iscariot had been replaced by Matthias, and so there were 12. And, and they were the ones that were functioning in the early church in Jerusalem uh, as pastors. They were called apostles here in, in Acts chapter 6, but they were, they were really functioning as pastors. And the people brought to those 12, those who were functioning as pastors and, and who were giving leadership to the church for a solution. Fix this problem. Fix the fact that there are some widows being overlooked. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the pastors, because that's who the, the, the widows came to, the widows that were being overlooked and those who are representing them came to the apostles, functioning as the pastors. They came to them. So the pastors gathered the congregation, the church, the people. We're told in verse 1, disciples gathered the disciples together. Also verse 2, and made a proposal to the people, to the congregation. All right? And, and what they did was they delegated the responsibility that they had as the spiritual leaders of the church. They delegated the responsibility to the people, to the congregation. And they told them to choose seven men from among you. Gave them qualifications, what that needed to be. And uh, to, to, if those men were going to serve, we said these seven men were what we would call prototypes of deacons, our deacons today. The word there is used in the text, but not translated as deacon because it doesn't call these seven men deacons. But it, it appears to us that would be, this is the prototype, the forerunner uh, of what a deacon ministry would look like. And they would then, those seven men, would then serve the church. So do you understand what happened here? The leaders of the church, the pastors, gathered the congregation, the people together, and delegated authority to the church to choose seven men, deacons. So those men would minister to the widows. There you have it as we're going through. Verse 5, we're told, this proposal pleased the whole group, the whole church, the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, and we go through, man full of faith of the Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. The church was pleased with the proposal that the pastors had made. They went out, followed through on that, accepting the proposal, accepting the responsibility to choose seven men. Then we get to verse 6. The church, they, presented these men to the apostles. The church then, the congregation, presented the seven men chosen to serve as deacons, to the apostles, to the pastors. Why? Well, as we see, who prayed and laid their hands on them. In other words, the church brought the seven to the pastors for their affirmation and dedication as they prayed and committed to them to ministering 
to the widows that were being overlooked. So the word of God, verse 7, as you look at it, Acts 6 and verse 7, you look at it, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. The church grew. The church was blessed as they worked through this potentially divisive church split kind of stuff, and yet it was solved. Pastor-led congregationalism at its best. Pastors and people doing the work of the ministry together, and the church flourished. Do you see that? That's what was going on. Let's look at another text. Move ahead about eight chapters uh, to chapter 15, Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15. This is another illustration of congregationalism, pastor-led congregationalism, all right? Just start there in uh, verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. If you have a study Bible or a Bible with headings and so forth, you probably have at the beginning of Acts 15, it says the Jer council at Jerusalem. We often call it the Jerusalem Council, and we'll see what this is. Verse 1 of chapter 15, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Remember, we looked at the church plant in Antioch. We saw that. They came to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you've got to remember that the church is still going through a transition. Peter had preached the day the church began in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people got saved. They were primarily Jews. And the Jews had been following through the Old Testament system of the law. But Jesus Christ since then had died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again three days later according to the scriptures. He did that to pay the penalty for our sin. That was new. The Jews didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah. But here they are, the church is, is moving forward, and, 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 and now there are some who are saying, except, there it is, look at it, uh, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The gospel says you're saved by faith. Faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. No works. Circumcision was an Old Testament work of the law, not necessary for salvation, but that's what was being taught. So as you have it there, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, notice, appointed along with um, some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders, the spiritual leadership of the church in Jerusalem. All right, you, you, you're following? So there it is, verse 3. The church sent them on their way. Remember I said appointed? The church appointed them. The church sent them on their way to go up to Jerusalem. Now, actually, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. Why, if you're going south, would you say up? Because literally the elevation of Jerusalem was up. That's why. So just as you read Scripture, understand that, all right? 
So the church sent them on their way. As they traveled through Phoenicia, Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles, by the church and the apostles, the congregation and the apostles and elders. Now, it's not just apostles who are functioning as pastors, but now we have elders who are pastors, right? Pastors, okay? So there they are. They're meeting with them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. That's the problem. That's what was going on. That was the misunderstanding of the gospel. The Jews thought, okay, these Gentiles who are coming to know Christ, they got to they gotta be Jews. They got to do just what we did. They got to be circumcised. No. That's what he said. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. No. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross. Right? Paid for our sin. That's it. Said it and done. No more daily or yearly offering of sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and shedding of their blood to cover sin. Jesus Christ did that once and for all, never to be repeated again. That's not necessary. The law of, the Mos- of, of Moses is no longer needed to look forward. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. All right? So there you have it as we look at that. So as we go on down, the apostles and elders met to consider this question, we're told in verse 6. Listen, this issue could have split the church too. Could have caused great division because all of a sudden, and this is a doctrinal, a theological problem. This is error. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, as we often say, right? And so that, there were those teaching, no, no, that's not the way it is. They got to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. So it was being considered. So we find the apostles and elders, the apostles and pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church meet to discuss and come up with a solution. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, all right, so the debate, the discussion, all of that is, is done. They, they've heard it, and if you would read in the text, you'd find out that Peter got up and spoke and Paul got up and spoke, and, 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 and so as we see it here, um, it was when they finished, verse 13, James spoke up. This is James, who is the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Brothers, he said, listen to me. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying we've solved it. It is no longer, it is not necessary for Gentile believers to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. He said we must not make it difficult. But here's the deal. The apostles and pastors discussed and debated. James, the lead pastor, who was also the half-brother of Jesus, right? The half-brother, the lead pastor in Jerusalem announces his judgment. He had put all of what the discussion and debate had led and came up with the conclusion, no, we are not going to make it difficult for Gentiles to come to Christ. That's a, that's a great thought. 
It's a great truth to consider today. We don't want to make it difficult for people to come to Christ. The gospel is very clear and simple. Sometimes people say too simple. Well, it's what God has given to us. So verse 22, look down there. After James pronounces, then we get, then the apostles and elders with the whole church, the congregation, all right, decided to choose some of their own men and, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. Later on towards the end of chapter 15, it says there are prophets. Others believe there are probably also pastors, elders there in the church at Jerusalem. Verse 23, with them they sent the following letter. Now, notice, the apostles and elders with the church put a team together of men who are going to travel up to Antioch and some of the other places where this heresy was being taught, and and they were going to write a letter, and we want you to go deliver what we have determined is necessary in solving this issue. And so then verse 22, with them they sent the following letter. Now notice how the letter starts. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Sirius, and Cilicia, greetings. So there it is. We're going back. Now the whole church appointed the men, the team who was going to go deliver the letter, but the letter was written in the authority of the pastors, the apostles there. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers. So they sent that letter. It was signed by them. And we notice once more an example, I believe, of pastor-led congregationalism. Pastors and people working together to bring resolution to this potentially divisive issue. No sense of a dichotomy. Sometimes that's the way it can be viewed. You got the pastors, you got the people, and we talk about that. We zero in, well, who's in charge here? Is it the pastors? Is it the people? We said the ditch on one side is the elder rule. The ditch on the other side is congregational rule. Well, sometimes when we talk that way, it creates a dichotomy within the church. It splits. No, that's not the way God ever intended it to be. You read nothing of the sort here. They're together. They're working together to accomplish, solve this doctrinal issue. And then how they're going to get the word out to everybody. They didn't have text and email and cell phones and whatever else. If I said fax, somebody would go, what is a fax? (laughs) That's how far advanced we are, right? Fax. It's like saying that black box on the wall that has the cord to it, you know. Same thing. Well, no, they didn't. So, so they had to get the word out. They worked together to solve the issue. Pastor-led congregationalism. One more. This will be real fast. Now, you just read Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, 17, which is what we typically call a text on church discipline and that's when somebody has sinned against you you individually you go to that one you do not go to others and tell them that somebody sinned against you you go to the person who sinned against you period 
And then if they listen, great, the problem's gone. If they don't, you go find a couple of witnesses. This is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 18. And, and you take them and say the same thing. And if then if it's solved, great. But if it's not, what does it say? Verse 17 of Matthew 18. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. We've done that here. I think two or three, maybe four times in, in the 12 years that I've been pastoring. We've met right here in this auditorium, laid out the problem, and we've prayed. We've told it to the church, and we've prayed and said, folks, pray for this individual, and if God gives you opportunity, go talk to that individual. That's what's going. You know what this is? Elder-led congregationalism. It's working together to solve the issue. So what now? What now? Well, who's in charge here? And we said last week, maybe we ought to be saying who's in charge of what? Or who's responsible for what? Because by saying who's in charge, sometimes it creates that dichotomy. It means that somebody is in charge and over others. That kind of talk doesn't sit well in our culture today, does it? Nobody wants to be told what to do by anybody. Believe me, I've been in a police car when we pulled somebody over, and it's not like I could never have imagined years ago talking to a police officer the way sometimes I hear people talk. But that's the day and age in which we live, right? And it happens in the classroom. It happens in the workplace. It happens in the neighborhood. The whole, nobody wants to be told what to do, but the Bible lays out some authority structure. But it doesn't mean that's that it's not, that's not the emphasis. It's getting the work of God done. So I want you to see, our Constitution says, the members of Heritage Baptist Church, the congregation, you, have the following specific responsibilities in governing the decisions of the church. And, and here they are. I've got seven of them. They're in the Constitution. This is what the Constitution says you vote about. We vote about. We, not you, we. I'm, I'm a member of the church too, right? I'm part of the congregation. We vote about choosing pastors and deacons. I just talked to you how we'll do that. We just voted a few weeks back about Pastor Mitch, right? That's why we do that, because we believe that should be for the caring for membership matters. Every once in a while, Scott will bring names to us. We vote them in or out, right? Approving the annual budget, December 17th. We're going to do that. Authorizing real estate transactions. I don't think we bought any land for a while. All right, number five, the next, uh, commissioning and sending vocational Christian workers, right here, Asa and Sus, we are their sending church, they're going to Peru, why? Because you voted to call them and send them to Peru, and they're raising support now. We did it with Pastor Mitch just a, a month or so ago. We did it a year ago with Pastor Scott and, and Pastor David Wyman, right? That's what we voted on. It's not just a formality. This is big stuff. It's a big deal. Approving the Constitution and any future amendments or changes and then making other decisions as considered necessary by the church leadership. That's it. That's what, the, that's what we vote on. Why? Because we agreed that that's what we should vote on. Now, here's what it says about pastors. Constitution also says this. Pastors are responsible to provide overall leadership and direction to the church to give, its, to give vision to its various ministries, and they are empowered to make the necessary decisions to oversee the day-to-day -day functions of the church. That's also there in the Constitution. That's what we've all agreed to as well. 
That's what my job is. That's what Pastor Scott's job is. Pastor Mitch's job is. That's our responsibility. Both of us, all of us, the congregation, the pastors, have responsibilities to fulfill. Now, what is then pastor-led congregationalism? I worked long and hard on this, prayed much, and here's, I wanted to put it all together. I thought, I'll find somebody's quote, and I'm like, no. So, the pastors and people working together under the authority of Jesus Christ to fulfill their responsibilities and accomplish the mission of the church. That's it. And you know what I believe? I believe that congregationalism is a whole lot more about us doing what God's called us to do than it is about who's in charge here. Do you understand that? Sometimes churches split and fight and feud and fuss with each other about well, you didn't, you didn't ask us for this, or we didn't get to say that, or, or I, we, we tried to lead you, and you didn't want to, and, and we blame the pastors, we blame the people, and sometimes we blame the people because the leadership is bad and, and, and makes mistakes and says dumb things. I'm sorry if I said the word dumb. That's a bad word. Makes some bad decisions or whatever, right? But congregationalism, but we're in this together, folks. That's what it means. This is God's church, but we have a responsibility to function together. We each have responsibilities. We have a mission, and that's why we're here together until Jesus comes back for us to do the work of the church. We will never accomplish our mission if we're in the ditches. There's my picture. (laughs) Wow. You the man, Jake. Sylvia worked long and hard to find that. But seriously, have you ever been that? That's what it looks like. It's like your car will get lost if it goes in there. So will we if we go into elder rule or congregational rule. Congregationalism is we are together in this for the glory of God. Pastor and people working together under the authority of Jesus Christ to fulfill our responsibilities and accomplish the mission that we've been given by God. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have given us a job to do. Thank you that you promised in giving us the mission, the great commission, to never leave us, to never forsake us, but to provide all we need For your glory, help us, God, to fulfill our responsibility and accomplish the mission of making disciples of all nations who make disciples for the glory of God. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.